CPHI podcast series. Hello and welcome to the CPHI Annual Report Roundtable podcast. I'm Gareth Carpenter and I'm a farmer editor at Informer Markets and I'm joined on the roundtable by Bikash Chatterjee, CEO at PharmaTech Associates and Informer's very own editor of Bioprocess International, Dan Stanton. Hello to both of you. Hello. Good morning. Due to the current circumstances, which need little explanation, for the second year running, we're doing this differently to the usual roundtable format, i.e. in this virtual setting. I thought that first of all, we'd begin with a general question to both of you. 2020 was an extraordinary year, as we all know, in the context of the pandemic and the implications for pharma, supply chains, approvals, etc. How do you think 2021 has gone for the pharmaceutical and biopharmaceutical industries? And if I could ask that to you first, Bcash. Well, compared to 2020, it's, <laughs> it's light years better. We have a vaccine out here and there's hope on the horizon. I think the industry has figured out a little bit how to navigate this new normal. And we are seeing a lot of programs which in 2020 were were stalled or in disarray or there really wasn't really a forward-looking plan until we knew whether it would be possible to have a vaccine available in a, in a reasonable amount of time as to how to proceed. So I have to say 2021 is going much better. On the supply chain side, I think so on the positive if we were to stop and be objective, we'd say, look, we've figured out how to navigate some of these different elements just from a COVID restrictions, COVID controls perspective. The supply chain challenges that we're encountering in Europe and in the US right now are sort of the result of a perfect storm combination of COVID restrictions coupled with lack of a labor force, coupled with lack of warehousing, particularly with goods from China right now, we have stuff stacking up in the ocean right now. And so I think it is a byproduct of the pandemic that we are encountering right now. But what I've seen is that as we've learned how to navigate, at least the current state right now, we have a lot better idea of how better to overcome these elements. So I would say thumbs up. That's where I put us. Okay, possibly a transitional year, I, I guess. And Dan, you're in the sort of world of biologics. What's your view on 2021 so far? Obviously, um, not just in biologics, but generally um, uh, from where I'm sitting, 2021 is a lot better than 2020 for some of the reasons that Lukash just pointed out. But as far as the biologics space goes and manufacturing side, which I cover, last year, really as hectic and crazy as the world was, the space really stepped up to support the rapid rollout of vaccines. And this year, we've seen that continuation of that. And uh, yeah, we've still got the supply chain issues that Bikash mentioned, but I kind of get a sense that there is a bit more normalization going on. The rapid expansion products by some of the suppliers have come into play now. So there is some sort of alleviation on that front. And, you know, fingers crossed, I'm being an optimist here. Hopefully, as we go into 2022 and everything gets even more normal, then for the biologics side of things, we're looking in great shape. Nothing wrong with a healthy dose of optimism, I say. So if I could turn to the CPHI annual report now, which is incidentally a great read, and I highly recommend our listeners to download and read it. Bikash, your contributions on the subject of how innovation in manufacturing is going to fuel the next decade of industry growth. And in it, you talk about advanced manufacturing technologies, uh, i.e. The, the new approaches and technologies that can improve drug quality, address the shortages of medicines and 
potentially speed up the time to market. And obviously all this is amid the backdrop of new modalities and therapies that demand a rethink of the approach to manufacturing and quality control. And on top of that as well, of course, the fact that going forwards, the market's going to have to continue to manage consistent downward pricing pressure. I know that's a lot to take in. But my first question to you is, how can the industry benefit from, say, adopting continuous processing in the next few years? There's been an awful lot of renewed focus on continuous processing, not just by uh, governments that are looking to address some of the uh, vulnerabilities that were exposed during the pandemic as it relates to the pharmaceutical supply chain, but also by governments that are recognizing that some alternative approach is going to be required if we're going to find a way to, to still maintain our push towards capitalism while having some security of supply. So continuous processing, it's not a magic pill. It's a very different modality when it comes to trying to manufacture drugs. It has the promise of uh, lower cost, lower capex requirements overall for manufacturing, which provides at least manufacturers that are in country or near country the potential to be more cost competitive with uh, some of the lower lower labor cost markets that provide APIs today, such as China and India. And when people think about the disruption of the supply chain that happened because of our dependence on API manufacturers, at least in the United States I'm speaking of right now, and India, it's not just the APIs that were disrupted. It was the chemical precursors associated with those APIs that were not available. So some of that can be managed. It's just there wasn't a great deal of focus in terms of that overall business continuity or business resilience thinking. And so we found ourselves with our, our shorts down, quite honestly, at this point. So continuous processing provides us a couple of big opportunities here. One, of course, is while there's an initial higher capex for a, a process train, I think typical oral solid dose finished drug process train is going to be about 25 to 30 million US dollars to manufacture. So that can be a, a bit of a pill to swallow. The overall facility size tends to be smaller. So the capital expenditure there is different. And then the uh, supporting unit operations around that are slightly different. So there are cost savings associated with that, that give an opportunity for um, drug product manufacturers to be able to make a high quality product at a more competitive cost. On the API synthesis side, API manufacturers have had the capability and have implemented continuous processing for years. They just haven't spent the time to optimize it. And so now there's a renewed focus, at least I can speak in the United States, there's a tremendous renewed focus on uh, API manufacturing uh, as the, uh, we've attempted to sort of reinvigorate the strategic national stockpile activity in the U.S. to put ourselves in a position where critical APIs or critical chemical precursors that we need for APIs are available in the event of a national threat. So there is an opportunity there for a regional API or nearshore API manufacturers and chemical precursor manufacturers to enjoy a renewed interest in the marketplace out here in the States. The other area that I think is often overlooked is the question of how you handle a non-conforming material. So in, in batch-wise processes, we're highly dependent upon sampling, testing, and then temporal segregation of the material. But in continuous, if you can implement some sort of inline monitoring, which you largely have to most of the time, or a heightened sampling element. When you see an excursion in your process, you're able to either stop or bring your process back into control for that particular unit operation. So you do end up with a much smaller amount and a much more specifically targeted 
amount of discrepant material, and that means a lower cost of poor quality. And I think that is perhaps the big opportunity that's sort of uh, lumbering in the background there beyond just the pure overall cost of goods reduction. It is that cost of poor quality reduction opportunity that uh, is going to make it even more attractive for drug manufacturers and API manufacturers to look at continuous processing. I'd like to pick up on the cost of poor quality. Um, what's what's yeah. the reason behind why pharma hasn't really adopted this on a wide scale? Because you say it doesn't make sense. You know, it's all about controlling the direct and indirect costs associated with defects generated by process. I think it varies. There's no one size fits all. I think there are innovator companies that have a keen awareness around cost of poor quality. Uh, it's not necessarily their primary management tool, but it's typically a KPI that is being managed. I do believe there's a large sector, and I'm just speaking for the United States right now, but I would imagine it's a universal truth in which folks track perhaps waste associated with that. And it is a metric that is looked, but it's not actively managed. When people start to look at accumulated cost of discrepant material, deviation, and root cause analysis investigations, it's tremendous. Uh, we worked with one client. It was a $600 million client. They made quite a few products at the time. And I worked with their controller. I said, let's just look at your top three largest selling drugs. And out of the top three largest selling drugs, when we calculated the cost of poor quality, it was over $100 million. It accumulates quite quickly. And it's not something that is necessarily tracked in totality. And so you end up with only a fraction of visibility into what the actual cost of every one of these excursions from a standard state is. I think as folks have a high awareness around that, that's a really, really large opportunity for folks to really buy back business performance. And Bikash, at the centre of this advanced manufacturing narrative is this idea of switching from traditional batch to continuous manufacturing, although there is an argument that the former is really a hybrid approach. Continuous manufacturing is a term that's also open to several interpretations. Could you please tell us about the recent evolution of continuous manufacturing in the pharma space? Yeah, I think there's been a couple of notable events, the most recent one being the issuance of the draft guidance ICHQ-13, which we've been waiting on for some time. It's up for industry to comment on right now. And if anyone wasn't aware of it, I strongly encourage you taking a look at it because they do take a broad swath at translating what continuous manufacturing may or may not mean, at least in a regulatory framework here. And it goes from anywhere from automating entire process train from active pharmaceutical ingredient through drug product down to automating a single unit operation. So that's one highly controversial conversation that's out there in the industry, and I'm sure they're going to get feedback on it. But in doing so, it sort of changed people's thinking in terms of what the opportunity might be when it looks at the advantages of continuous manufacturing. So continuous manufacturing, from a, just from a pure technology perspective, has a number of challenges out there that the industry is now beginning to grapple with. Obviously, the brass ring would be the ability to do real-time release testing on your product and then not have to actually sample and test and release your product. That buys a tremendous amount of cost backs and almost the simplest cost of goods sold out there. So in order to do that, you almost have to begin with the end in mind and be thinking about some of these innovations that are out there and what your characterization and control strategy needs to look like in order to support that. And so there's a great deal of focus now on NIR has been there for quite some time. It's a mature technology when it comes to a surrogate to HPLC, but now we're seeing focused implementations of, of Raman spec as well for anything from an FDIR 
also as inline x-ray powder diffraction. These are all different technologies that have been well understood on the benchtop and only now are now stepping into the uh, drug product continuous world. So that is really a, a nice innovation, I think, uh, when it comes to tools that we can utilize to really trying to realize some of these benefits. And I think with Q13, EMA's got their guidance out there. The U.S. has their guidance out there. We have much better clarity on what takes to effectively implement continuous manufacturing to meet the minimum characterization requirements, the real-time distribution requirements around the material that's moving through each unit operation, that the uncertainty associated with it has never been lower. So it's a perfect time for folks to really take a look at applying it in any context, whether it's strictly a single unit operation or an entire process train to see if the benefit makes sense for your product. I'd like to talk a little bit about as well how pharma companies are looking at utilising automation technology, again, presumably to drive down costs. Bikesh, what role do you think something like artificial intelligence is going to have in the next couple of years in the pharma manufacturing innovation fields? It's been a game changer. We've already seen focused machine language applications here, which have allowed us to optimize unit operations at an unprecedented rate. So I see AI playing its role in a number of areas. Going back to your earlier question about supply chain, I think uh, the application of AI and blockchain is brilliant. It allows us to maintain all of the rigor and security of the digital ledger, which is part of the blockchain solution, but it overcomes a lot of the inefficiencies and time loss associated with utilizing blockchain. So that's one area where I don't see that ever going away, not just in pharma, but in other sectors that are using it, and quite a few are at this point. We're seeing AI on the shop floor now when it comes to optimizing the process design space around unit operations. And so in the biologics field and dance field, for example, chromatography is one area that I'm seeing AI as a, a boon to optimizing chromatography skids to maximize both their efficiency and their throughput. We're seeing AI being deployed in the quality field quite a bit. More and more and more, we're, we're running into folks that are utilizing some sort of an application to either work on their complaints management or deviations review, harnessing the last X number of years, 20 years, 30 years, however long they've been around of history in terms of those particular areas there to create algorithms that allow you to take a very intelligent first swath when you have an observation that maybe is similar to something you've had in the past. We're seeing AI being deployed in lots of arenas. Of course, the simplest and probably one of the most effective applications that we have seen on the shop floor of AI has been in uh, total productive maintenance to make sure that we can predict when a piece of equipment that's critical to your process may have a failure event. The ability to gather literally petabytes of data, vibration data, et cetera, other KPI data around equipment's ability to operate has allowed us to really put together some very compelling models that are really effective from a predictive perspective. So that seems to be getting a fairly significant foothold as it relates to at least the larger operators in the industry uh, trying to stay ahead of the game. That translates to higher OEE and that translates to the better business performance. And I also understand that things like virtual reality are being used to train staff, for example. I mean, what advantages does training staff via virtual reality bring over, say, more conventional methods? Well, I think, you know, training is an area that has often <laughs> been relegated to a checkbox activity. And 
as PharmaTech, we have done a lot of compliance remediation, whether it's proactive remediation based on internal audits or folks that are preparing for an inspection from one regulatory authority or another, or maybe a potential partner out there. And training invariably comes up every single time. And the historical approach that pharma loves to do with read and understood, we just know isn't true, particularly as we've moved into more and more complex drug modalities out there. These processes are not necessarily straightforward. And so the ability to uh, utilize VR, whether it's uh, simulated on-the-job training, whether it's in a testing environment, whether it's creating scenarios in which the operator needs to react and do that in a way where they're not fundamentally putting product at risk or putting themselves at risk is tremendous. And we've seen that over and over again. One of the things I think I wrote about in my article was talking about the really innovative application of using virtual reality and camera systems to centralize expertise on some of the more sophisticated equipment support. So they'd have a centralized place. This person was, was going to wear a VR goggle, and then they have got a local operator that has the ability to actually look at equipment, and now they're looking at it at the same time. It, it's kind of crazy. They use that both as a learning tool, also as a solution tool. So we're seeing more and more creative solutions when it comes to virtual reality to help drive just better cognition and better data around how operators and how engineers and how scientists are interacting with the processes that they're trying to optimize. Are you struggling to cut through the noise? The pharmaceutical industry can be a crowded market. Partner with CPHI Online, the largest pharma marketplace and community worldwide. Get direct access to 280,000 pharma buyers and gather qualified leads all year round to help build your pipeline and grow your revenue. With CPHI Online, you'll be able to stand out from the competition and reach a large global pharma audience. To learn more about promoting your company using only one platform, go to cphionline.com. I'd like now to turn to the large molecules arena and Dan, who's been waiting very patiently, I'd like to bring you back into the conversation. Within the annual report, we have an overview of supply and demand trends in mammalian biomanufacturing by Dawn Ecker of Biotrack Database Services. And in it, there's some reasonably strong projections for growth in both demand for biologics and investment in capacity to accommodate it. Dan, what's driving this growth in biologics demand and how prepared is the industry for providing sufficient manufacturing capacity? Thanks for those questions, Gareth. As you pointed out, I'm commentating here on Dawn Ecker and Patty Seymour's reports within the CPHI annual report, and they do sterling work in tracking and forecasting the biologics demand and the uh, biologics capacity available in the industry. Yeah, the, what's driving the growth in biologics demand? Well, it's simply the sheer amount of biopharmaceutical products within the clinical development stages, um, both in the US and Europe specifically. And according to the report, um, there are over 1,500 such products in some stage of development, which I actually thought was possibly a little low. But the majority of these, around 85%, are produced 
in mammalian cell culture systems. You know, when we think of mammalian manufacturing, we, we kind of go straight to antibody products, which count for about 65% of these products. But the mammalian systems are used for a whole host of other modalities, including blood proteins, cytokines, enzymes, fusion proteins, hormones, and other recombinant proteins. So really, yeah, that, the, the pipelines, they, they haven't slowed down, even with the pandemic. The number of products waiting to be made in various scales is huge. As far as how prepared industry is, for providing sufficient manufacturing capacity. From the report, we're kind of in a good place. We're far away from where we were, you know, in the early 2000s where monoclonal antibodies had just kind of come along and we did not have enough capacity. And we're also far away from sort of 2008, 2009, when after industry invested to kind of rectify that problem, the global credit crunch hit and, yeah, found ourselves with too much capacity. According to Dawn and Patty, by 2025, the demand for biologics manufacturing by volume will reach nearly 3,900 kilolitres, 3.9 million litres. And to service this, global biologics manufacturing capacity is expected to reach nearly 7.5 million litres across the globe. Um, It sounds like that's plenty of capacity to service demand. However, there are a few things that you have to kind of realise here. The first thing is that you have to bear in mind that this capacity isn't universally available. You know, currently around 70% of global manufacturing capacity in the biologic space is owned by the sponsors or the product developers. So the likes of Roche or Novartis, Sanofi, Amgen. This is changing as contract manufacturers invest and expand in mammalian cell culture capacity. Uh, I'm thinking specifically here the likes of Fujifilm and Samsung Bio, who have both pledged huge amounts of money to expand their offering significantly over the next couple of years. But also the likes of Wuji Biologics, who is currently undergoing a huge global investment spree and seems to be popping up all over the globe. Thus, by 2025, the good folks at BDO predict that almost half, so 44% of available capacity will be CDMO or hybrid company controlled. The other thing to bear in mind is these are forecasts. So if a next generation blockbuster comes along, potentially requiring millions or hundreds of millions of doses, then we're going to need more capacity. So in the last 12 months, we've seen Biogen's Aduhelm be approved for Alzheimer's, so a huge potential, huge population there. And, and Biogen have scaled up their manufacturing capabilities, specifically in Switzerland, to prepare for a huge, huge rollout of that monoclonal antibody. So, you know, if any other monoclonal antibodies or products come along for large patient populations, then yeah, this capacity is going to be needed. And then, of course, you know, I haven't mentioned COVID, which is probably a good thing, but COVID also throws a spanner in the works, something the authors point out has been a challenge to incorporate in its forecasting and and continues to do so as we move into like the second year and booster programs and potential variants come along. So these are all factors that 
could make the situation regarding the potential manufacturing capacity a bit more precarious. There is a huge silver lining, you know, whether a pandemic or another pandemic comes along or a therapy that targets hundreds of millions of patients comes along. It is really important to note that the capacity that is being invested in and where drugs are being made now is far more flexible than it used to be in the early part of the century where facilities were essentially set up and made for a single product. Um, Now we have all sorts of things like modular clean rooms, um, single-use technologies, along with far better protocols and understanding on how to avoid cross-contamination, for example, or clean in place and sterilize in place procedures and such. And all of this makes biomanufacturing far more flexible than it has been in the past, which really allows industry to quickly and safely adapt and scale up where necessary. And again, they don't talk about COVID specifically in the report, but COVID has been an example where industry has been able to rally together and adapt its processes and its capacity to really kind of deal with that crisis. And Dan, in terms of geography, the US is currently the bedrock of established biomanufacturing. But what are the current trends with regard to where capacity is, well, now being built or going to be built? You're right. It's bedrock as far as it's got the most amount of bioreactor capacity sitting there. But really, in the last five years, there has been, well, up until 2020 at least, there's been very minimal growth within North America. So the US has traditionally, as I said, had this capacity, but Europe and Asia has really seen a number of large investments and the capacity growth rates in those regions, I think they're nearing in double digits check the report just for the specific numbers. But, you know, if we have a look at some of the news stories that have have broken in the last year there, in Europe, we've seen Boeing Guringelheim open up a huge facility in Vienna. The Biogen facility in Switzerland, which I mentioned before, I think that's opened its doors or very close to opening its doors. Fujifilm in Denmark, I think they've doubled or they're doubling capacity there. So there are really, really large investment projects going on in Europe. Similarly, in Asia as well, I mentioned Samsung Biologics and their fourth mega plant. I think that's under way and set to begin operating within the next couple of years or so, Wuji Biologics again in China. So Europe and Asia are definitely on the rise and to the extent where I think Europe is going to overtake the US. However, I will note though, as far as stagnation has gone in the US over the second part of the last decade, in the last couple of years, I've noticed, or we've all noticed, that investment has come back round within the US specifically. We saw former President Trump's tax breaks give firms incentives to kind of invest in their in-house manufacturing capabilities within America. We've also seen the pandemic sort of drive a policy of reshoring manufacturing. And, you know, there's been, similarly to the investments made in Europe and Asia, there's been a a string of large investments in the US in the past 12 months or so. The top of my head, Fujifilm building a really, really large facility in North Carolina, potentially going to be the largest single site in the world. Yeah, they broke ground on that in the last month or two. So, you know, everyone's investing, no region's going to be left behind. But yeah, Europe's really going to stick its head up above America in the next couple of years. And also within the annual report, Fiona Barry of Global Data Farm saw she shed some light on how CMOs are snapping up contract manufacturing deals for COVID-19 vaccines and therapies. Pretty good rate of knots. 
Dan, you mentioned booster doses for COVID vaccines, and those are already being administered in some countries. And it looks like a regular seasonal immunisation programme is going to take place and place extra demands on manufacturing capacity. What do you think is going to be the impact of COVID vaccine approvals in 2021 and ongoing unprecedented demand due to the booster doses? Before we get to the booster doses, I think just something that Fiona points out in the report, but it's quite clearly, uh, well, it, 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 it's pretty obvious to see that in the past, since 2020, CDMOs have really come to the forefront because of how they stepped up and helped provide capacity for COVID-19, both for drug substance and drug product capacity particularly in the vaccine space. So, you know, if you look back in April 2020, some major CDMOs like Lonza and Fish were talking about just the number of inquiries for their services. They probably used the word unprecedented because I think everyone did at that time. But the number of inquiries for their services to support vaccines and therapies against COVID-19. Since then, they've gone on to win major contracts with some of the main vaccine players, Lonza with Moderna, Firmofish is supporting Phil Finish with both Moderna and Pfizer, for example. I mean, those are two examples because the likes of Catalan claims to have been working or awarded more than 80 COVID-19 related contracts from customers, including J&J and Moderna. Fujifilm is supporting Novavax. Emergence is supporting AstraZeneca and J&J. And the list goes on, even with smaller players, which have really stepped up again. Rovi's work with Moderna, supporting the Moderna vaccine, has made Rovi a name within quite a crowded CDMO space. Same with Rentschler, who's supporting the Pfizer jab. So the, the list is really extensive. But I've spoken to Fiona Barry about as far as booster jabs come along and sort of seasonal immunization programs. I think, and you know, this is all speculation at the moment, but she argues that more capacity will be needed as the boosters come online and new vaccines approved. And therefore, it should be a second windfall for the CDMO space specifically. But yeah, I'm not quite sure I agree. I think much of the space used to roll out the first wave of vaccines will be reused for the boosters and new patient populations. If you think of the sheer numbers, according to Fiona Barry and Global Data, 2.7 billion people have been fully vaccinated worldwide, which is staggering number to kind of comprehend. So there's a lot of capacity that doesn't need to be used in the first place, if you see what I mean. So I kind of think these contracts will continue. They will provide boosters and the capacity will be used. But I don't think there's going to be the need for industry to rapidly scale up in the way it did last year. So I don't think we're going to see another land grab, so to speak, for capacity from the CDMO space. But you know, maybe I'm just optimistic that we are past the worst with the pandemic and that no new variants will come and maybe seasonal boosters won't become the norm. I know maybe I'm going against the grain because Pfizer's Albert Baller has kind of stated quite clearly that he expects to see new variants, but that's going to help Pfizer out in the long run. However, I did put this to Fiona, who said that even if that was the case and we didn't have the boosters, this capacity will not be wasted, especially in the mRNA space, because the floodgates now have opened up for mRNA and its use in other disease areas, especially oncology. And if you have a look at the pipelines now, it's, it's quite staggering how many disease areas and how many companies are actually investing and moving mRNA vaccines in non-COVID related areas through the clinic. 
moreover, some of the high-tech facilities that have sprung up to support the vaccines, if they're not needed for COVID, they could later be switched to support other modalities, particularly cell and gene therapies, where there is a huge lack of capacity. So, yeah, I don't think we're going to get the big push for more CDMOs to come on board. I think we're going to get the continued use of CDMOs and the continued use of their capacity as we go forward. And just fingers crossed there's not going to be um, a new pandemic or a new variant. It's an interesting uh, debate. And I wonder, actually, Bikash, if I could ask, do you have a view on this? Do you think that the COVID boosters, COVID vaccines in general, are going to sort of stretch the uh, capacity and mean that CDMOs are going to have to sort of get on board? I do agree with Dan largely. I think the CDMO demand with COVID support is tangible. It remains tangible. We know of several folks that are under government grants are expanding their capability right now to uh, be able to accommodate new vaccines that are coming out. So I see a portion of the capacity just being allocated, quite honestly, in the near term to uh, COVID vaccines. So I do think it's a consideration. In the States, I completely agree with Fiona's analysis here. Capacity has been an issue for a while. For folks on the large molecule side, for us, when we're working with different clients and we're looking to schedule studies or looking to clinical supply, et cetera, we're quite a ways out in terms of getting a spot in the queue to be able to do the processing and do the manufacturing with them. And if for our cell and gene therapy customers out there, 15, 18 months is not unusual to get a spot in the queue. And then occasionally you'll find you'll get bumped because of a commercial customer needing that time and space. So it's a perennial problem. And at least in the States, cell and gene therapy folks have looked to building small scale uh, clean rooms of their own to be able to do this effectively. So I don't see that going away anytime soon. So I, I think there is a capacity crunch out there. I mean, CDMO MA activity remains a consistent part of both the US and European and the Asian marketplace out there. That's likely only to continue. And while it's great to have the big boys like Fujifilm and Samsung out there providing capacity, the cost of those engagements sometimes are prohibitive for quite a few folks, particularly if they're early stage or phase one, phase two sort of drug development elements. And it's their first go around that there's always going to be a need for additional capacity. So I see it as a topic of conversation for the foreseeable future. We're getting towards the end of our time. I would like to mention the uh, 2021 survey contained within the CPHI annual report. You can find it at the front. It's essentially a survey of some 370 industry executives from over 35 countries evaluating regional pharma markets across several key indicators. So the CPHI survey it reported that the US has really extended its lead across API manufacturing competitiveness. We kind of touched on this already, but Bikash, do you have any sort of final thoughts? on this? It doesn't surprise me. There's just been a resurgence in the U.S. on and nearshoring APIs and their chemical precursors. As I mentioned earlier, you know, the resurgence of focus on the strategic national stockpile. The Biden administration just released their supply chain vulnerabilities report after the first 100 days, highlighting several key markets, one of which is pharmaceuticals out there, which is reinforcing the need for a particular key sources other than Asia for critical drugs. Then you've got the additional incentive being created by new business models. Like in the U.S., we have Civica RX and Mark Cuban's Cost Plus, which are 
fundamentally going to be building lower cost, high quality drugs for a subscribed network of hospitals and clinics that just continues to grow. So uh, California is looking at having drugs made just for California. So I think the incentive to find ways to be more cost competitive, being that conversation have never been greater than what we have today. And it doesn't surprise me when there's when there's that kind of incentive out there to find a way to do it, that folks are doing it. I can say just from our perspective, because we often get involved with companies on the, the more leading edge of technology, there have been a number of innovations on full chemistry, classical flow reactor chemistry applications, which have sort of made it far less daunting and far less esoteric when it comes to applying these reactors for routine API manufacturing synthesis. So it makes complete sense to me that the U.S. is still going great guns here. Sure. And perhaps somewhat surprisingly, China has um, bounced back after a poor 2020 performance in the CPHO Pharma Index, which is the overall composite score of the findings. Dan, do you have a view on this? Why have China sort of come back into favour after things didn't look so great uh, in 2020? Yeah, well, um, small molecule front, I haven't covered that area for a few years, but I did have a look over the the CPHI report and that did surprise me. I, I think maybe China's lower rating in 2020 was perhaps attached to the realization that supply chains were over-dependent on China at a time of pandemic. You know, I also think maybe there was some sort of misguided patriotism going on in other parts of the world. We started at the beginning by saying how much better 2021 is than 2020. Perhaps those ways of thinking have reduced this year. And that's why um, China's confidence, China's rating has um, jumped up over 2020. Bikas, do you have any uh, view on this one? I'm a kind of along the same lines as Dan there. So I think, you know, there's certainly vulnerabilities that were not anticipated from the pandemic in China that resulted in supply chain disruptions. And there was a sting associated with that particular disruption, which we're still all feeling for one reason or another, as, a, as I said, is a perfect storm that we're all trying to navigate. But one of the simplest things, low-cost drug manufacturers that are manufacturing products into sort of a, a tighter margin marketplace would can do is they can have multiple suppliers of chemical precursors and APIs, and China has quite a few of them, so you don't have to get all of your API from one region. And the regulatory frameworks around different markets around the world could vary dramatically. And so that is one way, a simple way, for folks to provide some level of uh, resiliency to their overall business continuity planning for their drugs. I know in India, they were stunned that uh, 34 of the critical drugs that were necessary to treat COVID in country, the APIs exclusively came from China and the chemical precursors exclusively came from China. So whether folks, they're able to find other folks in other parts of the country that diversified that, I don't know, but one of the simplest things to do would be to just go ahead and get more folks in China to do that while you continue to look at diversifying and setting up relationships with other firms. So it doesn't surprise me that they came back strong. Their government support is probably better than anybody else in the world. And so it makes sense that they're kind of back in the game. I think that marks a, a good place to wrap things up. Bikash and Dan, thank you very much for your insights. Thank you, Gareth. Uh, thank you, Gareth. Thank you for listening to the CPHI podcast series. For pharmaceutical news, webinars, events and more, visit cphionline.com.